Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I am your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my co-host and mother, Caroline Kilborn. Good morning, Mom. Good morning, everyone. Yes, good morning <laughs> to you. Good morning to you and everyone. Who are we talking with today? Well, we are talking with an amazing, amazing author, uh, Merle R. Saferstein. She's an educator, speaker, and author. She has been journaling since 1974 and has amassed a collection of 380 journals. After 26 years as a Holocaust educator, during which she helped hundreds of Holocaust survivors share their legacy in remembrance so that students could learn the dangers of prejudice, she retired and created Living and Leaving Your Legacy. And that's what we're talking about today. Through classes, workshops, and lectures, she has guided thousands of people in sacred legacy work, writing and journaling for wellness and healing. Okay, she um, lives in Miami, Florida, with her husband of 55 years, two children, and two granddaughters. And welcome to this program, Merle. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here today. There's actually two volumes of this book. Living and Leaving Your Legacy, and I think Caroline read Volume 1, and I had Volume 2. So each of these volumes is a sampling of your life, friendship and relationships, Holocaust stories, major news events, that you have drawn from these hundreds of journals that you've kept over the years. You actually go into some detail about how and why you decided to do this. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I have two children, as you had mentioned, and at some point I really wondered whether I should leave my journals to them. It never really occurred to me that I wouldn't. I just, but however, I also wrote them for myself. And in the year 2000, I started realizing that there was actually no way I could leave my journals to my children. So much of what I had written was really for my eyes only. And also, in my life, I've had a lot of people who have shared their confidences with me. And sometimes they are such that I really need to process. And so I would go into my journal and write about them. That being said, there was no way that I would want my children to see any of that. And so I realized that it would be a big mistake to be to um, share my journals, at which point I then had to look at what I was going to do with them. And as an educator, I kept thinking I had to have written something in my journals that was worth sharing, although I had no idea because I really didn't go back and read my journals, um, except in 1994. I did read about 32 of them and wrote a book from them, but it never nothing ever happened with it. So I decided that I was going to go back and um, embark on this journey, starting with Journal 1 and reading. And what I decided to do was take topics. So I initially listed about 40 different topics in my life that I thought might be in my journals that might be worth um, exploring. And it ended up, it took me 14 years to go through, three. It, at the time it ended up to be 359 journals. Um, and oh I ended gosh. up, I know, crazy. It, it was crazy. <laughs> I ended up um, right up actually um, taking excerpts from 70 different topics. 
so after I finished reading these journals in, in 2016, I then had to decide which topics I was willing to share. And by then I had realized that I was willing to uh, put these books out into the world and not just for my children and my grandchildren, my nieces and nephews, but for a broader audience because I realized at that point that I did have some things that I felt people could relate to. And so I absolutely, took them. Absolutely. Then I took four years and went through the the topics. So any topic could be anywhere from 75 pages to 450 pages. Single space typewritten because I would read my. <laughs> wait, 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 well, hold on, was, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're, okay. you're saying you had 70 topics and on each topic you had 70 to 400 and some pages? Right, right. Oh my God. I'm, I'm telling you, this is insane. <laughs> I know. Okay, so, keep going. <laughs> okay. So I, I then, um, what I ended up doing was I just immediately deleted topics that I knew I wasn't going to share that really I just I took them out because I wanted to look at them again but I also knew they were not not to be shared and so I deleted those and I you know now in retrospect can hardly believe that I did that after you know not, not saving them I mean I know it's all that stuff is still in my journal should I want it but I just glibly went through and said okay not this one not this one not this one and um and then I narrowed it down to 22 topics, at which point when I had the 22 topics, I decided I would do two books. And um, I, I randomly chose the topics for each book without really realizing that it was more intentional than I realized. So my subconscious was, was kind of guiding me because the first volume really is more of my earlier life, even though some of the chapters go from 1974 to 2016. It's more of my early career, raising children, marriage, and being a woman, things like that, where the second volume is much more of my um, later life, which I think has become more serious. The legacy work, death and dying, and I've done a lot of work with hospice organizations, um, with training people, and also visiting hospice patients. Um, and and the survivor piece, which um, which is really one of the most important things that I think of all the writing I've done, that that was it. So it took me a long time to be able to decide which pieces, which excerpts to share and which not to share. And I will say that, for example, the marriage chapter. When I first did the marriage chapter, I... When I went back and read it, it was really lovely. It was a lot of um, what I would call fluff. And I thought, you know, <laughs> anyone who reads this, who has been married or in a relationship, you don't even have to be married, but in a relationship for a long period of time knows that it is not all just cheery and wonderful. And one of my friends who's a psychologist kept saying to me, Merle, you really need to include the shadow side. She didn't know that I hadn't, but, you know, just in my talking to her, she kind of surmised that. And so one day I just said, all right, I'm going to just bite the bullet and go back to these excerpts and see what I have. And I started pulling some of the real stuff, you know, the, the issues and um, how I dealt with them and how my husband and I communicated and, and things that I realized that if people are going to read this book, hopefully they will um, learn 
and see the humanness in all of us and be able to to relate. So I know people, if it were all positive, people would not relate in the same way because no one's life is all all one way, all good. So that was the journey that I was on. And it was um, pretty amazing, just an amazing experience. Was it hard to relive some of the more difficult times? It was, yes, it was excruciating. So I always tell the story when I first started and told my husband what I was doing. He said to me, so does that mean when you get to the parts where you are angry with me, you're going to be angry with me all over again? <laughs> and I, I said, well, let's wait and see. <laughs> and then one day... He came home from the office, and you could see fire coming out of my eyes. And so I guess I have my answer. Um, it was it was really painful, and um, not certainly not all. It was equally as joyous. But there were times that you know I, I would watch the journey and realize how little I knew about something, but in time how I grew to come to understand and change the way I handled things. So it was that. There were two volumes that I actually didn't, I chose not to read. And as I was leading up to them, I realized that they were going to be really painful. And I knew exactly what what was in them. And I knew that there would be nothing good that would come from my reading them. And so I decided to skip it, which is not typical of me. But I also knew that it wasn't in my best interest to go back to that. So I, I chose not to. It's a journey, you know, and, and to have my life recorded in the way I have, it's like every day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, really, the uh, the ebb and flow of life. So, um, yeah, it was not, not particularly easy. It was also uh, one of the greatest gifts I've ever given myself, and especially to realize what I've what I've done in terms of recording my life, the history that I have, the things that you know we think we're going to remember, but we don't necessarily always remember in the way that we think we might. And I do know that because I journal, my memory is much greater than it probably would have been. Um, but I also know that that there's so much in there that would have gotten lost uh, had I not written it down. So. You know, the, the gifts and benefits of journaling, um, as far as I'm concerned, are boundless. The, why did you start journaling in the first place? Mm. Well, I had, I had um, kept a diary when I was a teenager. And those diaries, when my parents moved, my mother said that, um, that I never came to get them, which I find kind of hard to believe because I still have my autograph books in elementary school and all my scrapbooks. But um, I, in um, 1974, we had moved to Florida from Cleveland, Ohio in 72. And in 74, I had two small children. My children are 18 months apart. I was, um, we were living in a neighborhood where I really had not met many people. My children were still too young to go back to school. So, I mean, to go to school. So that's often when, you know, when, when we meet people. Um, so one day I was approaching my 30th birthday and I said, you know, I, I think I'm just going to 
right. And I, I have always liked to write. And so I just took out an old notebook I had and started just recalling where I'm at, what's happening as I approach 30, what my children are doing, what my, my relationship is. Um, and for seven years, periodically, I would just pick up my pen and write. As, as the years went on, I was writing more and more. But in 82, um, my closest friend at the time was getting divorced and she was no longer available to play. And my children were at, at the point where they were old enough that they had friends on the weekends. They were out doing things. And my husband was watching football or baseball <laughs> or, or basketball. And so I was pretty much alone. And I started going to the beach and started writing. And I, I picked up a book. I don't even remember the name of it, but it talked about a writing project. And I decided we were approaching our 15th anniversary. I decided to write a book for my husband based on our life experiences together. And because we had been high school sweethearts, so we had 20 years of history, really. Um, and I was, as I was doing that, I was writing more and more. And so by 82 on, I was writing daily and multiple times a day. And was there any time where you didn't journal for a while or was it consistent from then on? No, it's been consistent. The only thing I will say is that once I started um, going through and reading my journals and realizing what I had and what I had committed to paper that I didn't need, like how far I ran or how much I weighed or <laughs> what we had for dinner, um, <laughs> You know, all those things that, that made no difference at all in the scheme of things, my writing changed. So I then began to write a lot less um, of the detail and much more of the inner journey. And so that's, that's really all this changed. Periodically, I, uh, I will have a day where I just don't write, where there's absolutely nothing that I need to say. So if I don't need to say something, I don't sit down to write. But for the most part, I um, I write at least once a day, generally very early in the morning when I first wake up. Um, just a half hour before we started, something happened, and I said, I think I just need to process this and sat down and wrote my journal. So I don't normally, um, in the middle of the day, write, or periodically at night when something's gone on or I just need to just have that desire to write, I will take out my journal because I know if I don't, I'm going to get up in the middle of the night and will not be able to fall back to sleep until I journal. So for example, two nights ago, um, I woke up at 2.30 and I started thinking. So I put on a meditation tape. That didn't work. I put on another one. That didn't work. And then I finally just came out into the um, into my Florida room and sat and journaled for two hours because I, I realized I really needed to get some things down on paper. Now, have yeah. you done other types of writing as well as journal writing? Yes. So as a child, I did a lot of letter writing. And I wrote letters until I, got, until I started doing email. Um, in fact, I was one of the last people I knew to do email because I knew that once I did it, I felt like it might take over the letter writing, which it absolutely has. Um, I also, in... 1985, I decided there was a book I wanted to write. We we live near a beach, um, Hollywood Beach, and there's an old hotel there that um, was built in 1926. 
And when we moved to Florida and we used to take our children to that beach, students from the hotel, which was now at that point a Bible college, would be walking along the beach and basically proselytizing and handing out <laughs> their, their tracks or whatever they're called. You know, we're playing with our kids and they're coming along and talking to us about God and Jesus and whatever. And um, I was kind of fascinated with the history of the hotel because it's had a really interesting history. So I decided I wanted to write a book based on that. And um, in 86, I, I got a job. So I started doing research on the hotel and then 86 got a job and I knew that I could not work, raise my family and do all that I was doing and write a book. So I put it aside. I never forgot about it. And I decided when I um, was ready to retire from the Holocaust Center, I decided the very first thing I would do was write that book. So in um, the year 2012, I spent the year I wrote the book. Um, based on um, the name of the book is Room 732. It takes place over the hotel's history. So it's in 1926. It was a very exclusive hotel. Wealthy people from the Midwest came and stayed. And then in during the war, the Navy took over. It became a naval indoctrination training center. After that, it went back to being a hotel. So in the very beginning, no Jews were allowed in the hotel. Jews were allowed to come and entertain, but no Jews were allowed to live there. In the 60s, um, the man who bought the hotel was Jewish, and so it changed in that respect. But it was also a fairly um, lovely hotel, not not nearly as um, upscale. And then in the 70s, um, it became a Bible college. So it was a Bible college for several years until the president had an affair with one of the students, and then that closed the school down. Um, and then it became timeshare, condo, apartments. And so I wrote eight chapters <laughs> based on one room, which is room 732. And when I finished writing the first draft, I went to the hotel and stayed in room 732 for 10 days. And and basically just went through, read it again, started editing, um, imagining <laughs> what it was like as a character. <laughs> I, I was at one time a, a preschool director. And the first night I got to the hotel, I, I, closed, I turned off the lights and I laid in bed. And all of a sudden, all the, the um, characters started coming, coming to me. And it was like I had all these imaginary friends. And then I said to myself, that's what those little people were talking about when they talked to me about their friends who did not exist in, in our realm. It was a really fascinating experience. So that book I ended up self-publishing because at the time that I finished it um, in September of that year, I was 60, 60 going to be approaching 68. And I knew that that book would be a vehicle for me to get out and start speaking and teaching. Mm -hmm. And so I decided I would be, and that's really what I wanted to do with my life. So I decided that I would um, self-publish if self-publishing was just on the verge of being acceptable. And I had a friend who is an author who also decided to self-publish. So she kind of was a trailblazer for me. I saw how she did it and I said, I can do this. And I am so glad I did. It was a wonderful experience. It got the book out there. It it um, led me to accomplish exactly what I wanted. And so that's the other writing I've done. Other than that, 
Um, I suppose anyone who lives with me would say I'm always writing. I'm writing lesson plans. I'm writing speeches. I am always writing, um, but not anything formal. So that's a that's a very cool concept, a collection of short stories all set in the same room of that hotel. How did you come up with yeah. the idea of doing it like that? I'm not sure, except that I do know that I've walked into a hotel before and said, I wonder who was in this room before me. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 other than that, I really don't know. It just kind of came to me. And um, it was fun to imagine different people and put them in the time. I will say that I'm absolutely not a fiction writer, so how I pulled it off, I have no idea. <laughs> and And the one... The one chapter that I really was going to take straight from my journals, um, one of my editors said that that chapter just doesn't work at all. It, to me, it was my favorite, and she she totally mixed it. I mean, it was crushing to me, but in retrospect, I understand. Um, so if someone were to say to me, um, write a story, you know, create a story, I don't know that I could now, I, which is kind of pitiful, but... Um, <laughs> I'm great, grateful that I had that experience. Now, these legacy, leave, living and leaving, excuse me, living and leaving my legacy, which mm-hmm. is um, a legacy journal. So it it's, has your journal excerpts, but also has room for people to. You have writing prompts basically with each topic, and room for people to write in this journal as well. How did that? sort of format come about? That's a great question. So it actually was not in my plan at all. Um, But in one of my legacy classes that I had been doing for a very long time, I was telling the women about it. One of the women was an English teacher, and she said to me, you know, Merle, you might want to ask questions at the end of each chapter. And so immediately questions in my mind became journal prompts. And then I said, you know, this is great because this really brings the reader in. It allows the reader, I mean, not everyone's going to journal, of course, but certainly if they were to read the questions after reading the chapter, it might might help them to um, personalize and bring in the information into their own lives. And so um, I was thrilled um, when I started to do that and realized that, that really there was a lot that I could offer in terms of journaling prompts. And then that's followed by reflections. So when I do a journaling circle, for example, and I have people journal, very often at the end I will say to them, now I want you to go back and reflect on what you've written and then just take a few minutes and write about that. And so what I did was I did the same thing. And, and when I was ready to put the books out, it was um, several years after I had actually finished doing, you know, taking these excerpts. And so things that happened between 2016 and 2022 and 2023. And so in those reflections, I was able to um, write about that. A, you know, what I felt about the book itself or about the chapter itself or the subject and then be what um, what has happened in between. So in some cases, you know, the chapter just stands on its own. But in other chat cases, like for example, marriage or parenting or whatever, that's still continuing on in my life. So then I would reflect on that as well. 
You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Merle Saferstein, author of Living and Leaving My Legacy, Volume 1 and 2. Now, Caroline, you are also a lifelong journaler. Mm. Uh, <laughs> well, more, more, just, more just diary, but uh, I have kept a diary, and uh, some uh, interesting things when you go back and look and see. Well, what, what's the difference what between doing? a diary and a journal? <laughs> I was just going to ask that question. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know, except uh, on a diary, <clears throat> you just have a few lines to put in, you know, to write on and one one day. And then the next day you have another little section. And, and so it's not, I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> I, um, there are just different kinds of diaries. So there is a... Um, one, and I'm not sure which yours is, Caroline, but one is um, where it's a one day, you know, you put the day and it's just one day you write whatever happened in that day. Or there uh-huh. are five day, a five year diaries where you just have maybe four or five lines and then every year on that day you write. Uh, but I think the real distinction between diary and journal is that diary is more of a recalling of the events of the day where to me a journal is more the inner journey so for example um one of my friends who's a historian uh, professor at one of the colleges when i finished going through my diaries and my journals on facebook i posted that at some point um you know i'm done with this part and at some point uh, when I die, um, I'm probably going to have my journals destroyed. And she called me up in a total panic and said, you can't do that. You know, this is history and, and it's going to be meaningful to someone, whatever. And so she said, start looking at archives. So I went to um, my college, the Ohio State University, and they said, we would love your any journals you wrote during college. And I didn't write any. Um, and so several, you know, just said, no, thank you. But there was one archive that um, that was interested. I actually met the director, and he said, just, you know, write me a letter and let me know what it's all about. And he wrote back and said, yes, we really want them. And as a result, um, what we'd like you to do first is to take excerpts based on, for example, he said, you started writing in the 70s, so um Share the excerpts you've written about the impeachment of, of um, Nixon and the Intifada in Israel. I mean, he just went and listed all these things, none of which I really felt I wrote anything of significance because, to me, I was writing much more about my own personal thoughts and feelings. And so I wrote back and said, I'm not interested. Interestingly enough, I did not realize how much I really wrote about the world around me. And that was one of the topics, and periodically, you know, I'd find something and record it. And then in, in the second volume, I had headline, I think it's called Headline Events in the World or whatever, and realized how much I really did write about the world around me. But in, in comparison to the rest, it's very different. Right, right. So, Caroline, I think, I mean, you may have written mostly about things that happened, but I the little bit that I've seen, there's some about your feelings about it, which is the inner journey. So I think oh, yeah. it's a oh, combination yeah. of uh, diary and journal, which probably most people do. Absolutely. Yeah. I do too. 
I mean, I definitely record the things that are going on around me and, um, you know, what, what I'm thinking in that day in terms of just very practical things. So, you know, Caroline, I would suggest that you can just say you're a journaler and just be done. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. My permission. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, just to say that there is an organization called the International Association for Journal Writing, which is um, something that I'm on the council of, and we convene um, monthly where people write together in, you know, journal, but, but in a group. And also um, they have speakers and it's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful connection for people who are interested in journaling. So I just thought I would put that out there just to say that that's one way for me, my journals were very, my journal world was very private until I joined and then started, you know, doing a lot more speaking about journaling and teaching journaling and whatever. You do journaling workshops too, correct? I do. So um, they mostly started when I was working at the Holocaust Center. We would do an inst- a teacher institute every year. And the first thing I would do at the beginning of the institute would be to talk to them about journaling because learning about the Holocaust was such a heavy experience and I wanted the teachers to be able to process, and I also wanted them to understand that that they need to have their children, their students, um, keep journals as well during the course of the um, teaching of the Holocaust. And so we would do that, and I would have them journal through the week, and um, just be able to express themselves. So those workshops I did for you know for as long as I was at the Holocaust Center. And um, periodically, I would just just do like in one of the colleges for the adult um, learning programs. I would do a journal workshop. Now I do what I call a journaling circle, and I started it uh, in April of 2020 with COVID. I was asked to do this, um, and we have met. Uh, tomorrow is going to be 160 times that we've met. Most of the people in the group had not journaled before, but during COVID, we're just desperate to be able to do something. It was early on, and what did we know about how long it was going to last and what it all meant anyway. And so there are 15 women now. There were more, but you know, in time, some dropped out. And we journal, and we have fabulous discussions, and it's been something that I just I just do because I love it. I don't charge them. I just, each week we just come together and um, it's been very meaningful. Well, I had started a writing uh, writing group in my church and uh, uh, we, you know, liked it very much. Of course, then when COVID hit, we couldn't really do it too much. So we had, COVID made a big change in the world, didn't it? It really it did. It sure did. It sure did. It did. But so, you might want to start again. You might want to start again. You should do people that. Are, people yeah, are maybe hungry. Yeah, yeah, people are hungry for, for connection and community, especially after COVID. I think I think a lot of people are just finding their way back. And that might be mm-hmm. something. Um, and I'd be happy to share with you some of the things that I do if, if you'd be interested. We can do that at some point. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Merle, I'd like to talk a little more about, um, like you mentioned, that the Holocaust survivor stories that you share are the most important mm -hmm. part of these books. How did you become a Holocaust educator and what was, you know, what was that like? Long story. I'm going to make it as short as I possibly can. Um, so in in 1983, the beginning of 83, I quit my job. And um, I had never quit a job before and was really lost. I was at the time. Um, so it was actually, I knew in December of 82, I was quitting. Um, I was I just turned 38. So I would say that I was going through an existential crisis, trying to figure out who I am, what I am, where I'm going, and literally had no clue. Um, and so I spent a lot of time at the beach. And each day when I would jog, there was a man doing the exact same thing I was doing. And, it, you know, we would wave to each other. And then I would notice that he was set up just like I was with pen and paper and books and just down the beach for me. And at one point, he stopped to talk to me, and our conversation began. Tom was a priest. He had just left the priesthood. He'd been in the priesthood for eight years. And he was working on a documentary and was only in Miami for a short period of time. And he ended up leaving at the end of January. But between um, the beginning of that month and the end, we had some very intense conversations. He was really spiritual, and he had read all of Carl Jung and, and was really a student of his and was helping me to, um, you know, they say the expression when the, when the student's ready, the teacher appears, and there he was. Mm. And so I, I was really on the path of individuation, although I didn't know what I was doing. Um, he said to me, you know, once you step on this path, there's no turning back. And I said, all right, whatever. And um, so Tom, when he left, he ended up doing um, – a variety of different things, but he ended up in New York and he was working as a, a temp and he was working for someone who owned a PR agency. And this man was putting on the play. It was an opera actually called um, Yours Anne. It was about the diary of Anne Frank and it was on off Broadway. And Tom was doing the, um, he was doing the PR for it. And the man who was president of the organ of the, of the, um, and Frank Center was the man who was the producer of the play. And he, at some point, asked Tom if Tom would come and be the executive director of the Anne Frank Center. At the same time, someone had found Anne Frank's family photo album in the chest of drawers in Germany, had um, sent it to the Anne Frank Center in Amsterdam. They created an exhibition called Anne Frank in the World, 1929 to 1945. And um, Tom's job was to send that exhibit around the world. So now it's just, it's May of 1985, and that's over two years that I hadn't been working. And no, it was a year and a half. I don't know. It was a long time. And I need, really needed a job. But Tom called me up and he said, how would you like to bring this exhibit to Miami? It was 800 photographs of Anne Frank in the center and the Holocaust around it. Um, and he said, you'll be the first city, it's, you'll be the pilot city, you can make it as big as you want. He said, I know Anne Frank speaks to your soul, I know you journal, whatever. And um, 
it was a volunteer position. And I spoke to my husband and he said, yes, you have to work, but you really have to do this first. And so I ended up bringing the exhibition to Miami in December, uh, December 15th of of uh, 1985 um, till January 26th of 86. And so it was here for six weeks. Um, My goal was to have 50,000 people. We ended up with over 60,000. And um, I did a lot of student programming. And one of the programs I did was um, with high school students, two high school students from every school in Dade County. So there were 50 high schools at the time. And prior to that, the month before that, one of the um, high schools had put on the play The Diary of Anne Frank. And I actually went to the school and brought a Holocaust survivor whom I had met from this class I was taking at the Holocaust Center on um, interviewing Holocaust survivors. Someone had told me this is the best thing to do um, while I was not working, having no idea that I was going to end up be, you know, becoming this, um, you know, in charge of the exhibit. So I brought Jerry Goldsmith with me to meet the cast and the crew and had him talk about his experiences living literally in hiding down the street from Anne Frank. And um, the, the characters from the play, I had them ask questions of him based on their character. So, for example, um, Peter would say something about falling in love and, and did that ever happen to you? And then um, Otto Frank would ask him what it was like. Was there fighting in their, in their hiding place? So it was a really powerful thing. So I decided to invite all of those students, both the cast and the crew, to this program as well. And I invited two of the women from the Holocaust Center to come and see what, you know, to be part of this day, to to talk to them a little bit about what they do. And um, it was a very powerful day. I did some journaling with them. I talked about the antecedents to the Holocaust. Um, We talked about Anne Frank. And right before we went down to lunch, I had Peter stand up and give a line from the play. And then the rest of the cast stood up and they did an act in the play from the play and it was mind-blowing because nobody had any idea who was from what school or that any you know that they were friends and here they were acting out one of the scenes from the play it was very powerful and then we went down and, and saw the exhibit so the two women who had come from the holocaust center after the exhibit was over, called me up and said, we have done a lot of adult programming. We haven't done any student programming. We'd be really interested in having you come volunteer in our education committee and possibly help us get some student programming done. So at the time, after the exhibit was over, nothing happened. I did not have a job. I was still lost. Um, And it was really a letdown because I was supposed to be the educational consultant for the Anne Frank exhibit that was going to go around the country. And I was to an extent, but I wasn't traveling and they weren't paying me. Mm. They said, you know, if, if I can earn my money, they will pay me, but that didn't happen. Mm. So it was a huge disappointment to me. Um, and so I went as a volunteer and their secretary quit and they said, would you mind being secretary? And I said, well, I'll do that for three months, but if I'm not in education, then I'm out of here because I really need to get serious about what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And they had hired 
someone with her PhD in Holocaust studies to head the department. This was in March. She was coming in August because she was just finishing getting her PhD. And so I helped them and we planned a program, a student program very similar to um, to what we ended up doing, you know, when I, once I started working there. And when this um, director came, she was a disaster. And unfortunately, she just could not, she was not an administrator. And by then, my boss had already had me um, working on teacher institutes and starting to do student programming. And it was very awkward, but they ended up firing her. The president of the Holocaust Center at the time was also the president of one of the universities here in South Florida. And he um, took me to breakfast and grilled me for about three hours. And at the end, he said, you can do this job and hired me. So it originally, <laughs> I was called the program director, but I was really running the, the Department of Education. As soon as he left, the new president came in and gave me the title. Oh, wow. And, and you stayed for there for years. for 26, 26 years. Isn't it yeah. amazing sometimes how things just sort of you don't plan it, but right. But everything that you do leads to it. Right. I mean, this is how this happened. It's, you know, to me, it's a great story. And Tom, Tom ended up being the UN bureau chief for ABC for 10 years. Oh wow! So he, I know his. I mean, his career just kind of went in a great direction, and we stayed friends. We were friends. He, he passed away in October, but we were writing for all those years. Um, we stayed very close. So it is. It is amazing how these things happen. And truthfully, this was um, probably the most important thing I've ever done in my life, and most meaningful. Um, my mom when when. Um, I first met Tom and we became good friends. My mom was only afraid he was trying to convert me. And meanwhile, <laughs> he led me to this job at the Holocaust Center. So you, you, you just never know. You just never know. You're listening to Writer's yeah. Voices, and our guest today is Merle Saferstein, author of Living and Leaving My Legacy. Um, I just wanted to mention that right down the road, in between where Mother, Mom, and I, where Caroline and I are right now, in Danville, Iowa, is a at the library is a museum called the Anne Frank Connection. Um, oh wow! Anne Frank had a pen pal in Danville, oh. Iowa. Really? And yes. So. Um, in 1939, a Danville teacher, Miss Bertie Matthews, initiated a pen pal exchange for her class. Ten-year-old Juanita uh, Wagner picked a name from a list of pen pals. She chose a girl her own age who lived in Amsterdam, and that girl whoa. was Anne Frank. So you can see the letters that they exchanged. There. Oh, they just oh, gave me the joy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh. What a great story. I know, story. I know. And it's mm -hmm. a self-guided um, museum, and mm -hmm. uh, it's open whenever the library is open. And Eva Schloss, uh, um, mm -hmm. who is the stepsister of Anne Frank and wrote the book, The Diary of Anne Frank, uh, visited there mm. um, wow. in May of 2018. Hmm. So, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Where life takes us. 
you just never know. <laughs> I know. I actually, for, as a as a young um, preteen, sent wrote letters. I think I had six pen pals all over the world, um, and Did- loved that. And then in um, 2014, I went to India and went to a school that was um, a slum school, and I ended up working with the middle school of of that school in India and my and the middle school in our um, our synagogue had a, a day school and I paired up the kids and the teachers and they wrote back and forth and our kids raised twelve hundred dollars that we sent to them so they could get backpacks. So oh. that was yeah. I mean it was such a wonderful exchange. And they had a translator so our letters, you know, our letters were in English. They wrote in Hindi, Hindu, and someone translated for us and translated for them back and forth. But that was ten pals. Ten pals are a great thing to be able to do. Well, Caroline, you had an elementary school pen pal as well, right? Well, actually, actually, no. I, I mean, in Australia, that was a after I was married. Oh, okay. I thought uh, it started younger. Yeah. So you started. Writing and how did you how did you connect with her? I forget how that started, but but um, anyway, it was interesting, and I still I still connect with her. She's you know, and she her, came her daughter. Her, she, yeah, she came to visit. Yep, she came to visit, and oh, her daughter wow. came to visit too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How <laughs> special! Wow. And now a friend and now a friend of mine has a daughter who lives in Australia, and they go there frequently, visit there frequently, and so uh, yeah. So oh, it's a it's a small world, really. <laughs> now, Merle, it you mentioned that you were one of the you know last people to switch to email because you were a letter writer. Now, Caroline, you're still writing letters, aren't you? Yes, because I uh, because some of my friends are not on Facebook, and so you know I need to keep <laughs> touch with them. So I'm still writing letters. <laughs> <laughs> and Caroline. Caroline, isn't it wonderful to go to the mailbox and have a letter? Oh, it is. It is. Oh, my God. I miss that. Yeah. And and this one friend of mine always remembers my wedding anniversary to my second husband because she introduced us, actually. And uh, mm. so it was, you know, it's really very meaningful. And, and they and she, yeah. and, her, and she and her husband were able to visit uh, last uh, last summer and uh, for a few uh, for a couple hours and on their way someplace and oh it was great you know good touch base again so that was special and you actually great. also had two two romances that were carried on largely by letter the first to my father before you married mm-hmm. yeah because it was yeah. long distance and then with um with bob after yeah, you know, after right. you were after widowed you, twice. After, <laughs> yeah. Do you have exactly, Caroline? Yeah. Do you have those letters, Caroline? Well, what do you think? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh good. <laughs> That's good. You know, Tom, Tom and I were going to write a book with our letters, um, and and I have, I mean, I I literally have hundreds and hundreds, and have them fold in folders according to dates. Um, some are still in envelopes, you know, in the big envelopes. Um, but when he died, somehow I knew that it just, it kind of lost its, mm. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but 
you know, when I started a few times, I started a few times and, and never finished because it's hard. It's really hard. And there were times Tom was gay and, um, I, you know, I said, are you ready to expose this? Because if not, you know, there's this and there's that. And there were just things that we really weren't ready to put out. But then um, at one point prior to him dying, he said, absolutely, I'm ready. And um, and then he died. And I just felt like, I don't know, I'm going to read them. But yeah, I don't know. Right. But then the other thing is we always wanted to tell our story because I think it's just such a great story. And um, I have done that throughout the two books, you know, he's in there through both books. He's kind of laced through cause he's laced through my life in a very special way. Mm. So I feel like the story's out there at least. And that's what's important. You know, it made me think of Mark Twain's journals um, mm. that he said couldn't be published until a hundred years after his death. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah. and then they were, <laughs> Well, it's interesting, the archives, you know, one of the things with archives is that when I was talking to them, I said, it has to be at least um, 50 years, but I I wouldn't want these journals published till my, even my grandchildren were gone, because, you know, who knows what I might have said about their parents, and I, I don't know that I have, but I just realized that it could be really difficult. It's hard for someone to read stuff when the person's not there and you can't talk about it. Yeah. So I do have this fantasy of having a great-grandchild who just speaks to my soul and who says, okay, this is it, and I can leave them to that child. <clears throat> who knows? So you still haven't decided what will happen to them? Well, I have. I mean, in my in my will... It's that they're to be destroyed upon my death. No one's to read them, and my kids know that. My husband knows that. But I do have a friend who's an artist, and she is really wanting to do some kind of art project with them. So we are in conversation. I don't don't know whether that will happen, but um, it's possible. It's possible. Very. I, I, I... I, I would like to not destroy them truthfully, and I'd also like to be able to read them one time without all this craziness that I did. Just sit down. And I'm thinking when I turn 90, that might be something that I want to do. Sit down and just read them from cover to cover, and just kind of relive my life. Now you took you said 14 years to get through them, to read them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you could do it in a shorter time if you didn't have a lot of other distractions. I'm assuming. Well. Yes, that and also it was a project because I to take the ex uh, the excerpts, oh the excerpts yeah I had to mark them and then uh, so one journal would have something like two hundred little post-it notes <laughs> and then I would have to go through and put them onto the computer so one journal was could take up to eleven or twelve hours the whole process now if I just were to sit down and read without marking. It would be a whole other story. Although I, I will say that I probably would want to share excerpts. So during this process, the other thing I did was if, if there was something that I felt a friend or family member would really be interested in seeing, I would um, mark that. And then at the end of putting in all the excerpts for me, I would then send emails to them with those. And, and I did it for twofold. One, one reason was because 
I wanted to share it with them. But secondly, I wanted them to understand the value of what, what I was doing. Now, reading this, as someone who doesn't know, you would get some idea of, of your life, but it's not um, – it sort of jumps around a lot because you're just talking about one topic, and so you're, there might be something from, you know, one month and then 14 months later is the next right. thing. And, and right. have you ever thought about writing a more sort of chronological memoir? I haven't, and the reason is that um, originally, when I took, you know, I told you I had taken written this book with 32 um, volumes. I I did originally started in topic form, and I was writing in those days. It was before computer. I was writing on a legal pad, and I was getting just. It was so hard for me to um, be able to. You know, I'd finish a page and then I'd have to go 20 pages back for the next, for the same topic. It was, it got to be a logistics nightmare. And so I did it in chronological order. Um, but the way, I, the way I look at this book and these books is that it's like my life is a tapestry and each of the chapters is a thread. And to me, there's something when I went back and saw what I had just on marriage or just on parenting or just on spirituality or whatever the subject, it was so powerful to see that without anything else around it. Mm. Um, so I, I, I don't know that I would ever consider that. I mean, my life is out there. I don't think anyone needs to read any more about it. Um, <laughs> And also a memoir is really just based on generally one theme. So it's it's like a person who, for example, was abused might write about that and, and the pain of that as an early child and, and how one dealt with it and what happened and and as an adult where they're at. So so even if I were to write a memoir, it would not be, you know, I wouldn't be able to include all of this anyway. But I'm done. I, I, I think I put myself out there <laughs> enough. Now, what about other types of writing projects? Do you have any of those that you're still thinking of doing? You know, it's really interesting because since 1985, when I first thought I'd write the 732 book, um, I have always had a project, a big project. And my next project was really the book with Tom. And I figured that would take me the rest of my life to go through her letters and do it. Um, and I have to say that this is the first time in my life I don't have a big project like that. And it's very interesting. I'm, I'm really sitting with it. I'm um, allowing myself the opportunity to just be and see where that takes me. I don't think, I honestly don't think I'll write another book. I think I'm kind of done with that. But I do know that um, my next plan is to um, teach classes based on several chapters of the book, combining that with legacy and, and writing. So that's kind of what I'm working on now. I'm an educator before I'm a writer. And um, I think that in, in my last 
phase of my life, what I really want to be doing is teaching. And are you still doing um, any work with uh, Holocaust education? I'm not. Um, however, I am still friends with several of the survivors, and um, I do I do do a training with um, young thir- twelve and thirteen year olds on interviewing Holocaust survivors. Um, I have one Holocaust survivor who's 98 years old, who's a dear friend, who is still creating. She's an amazing, amazing woman. Um, so I, I have kept in touch with a lot of them. Unfortunately, many of them have passed away. But um, my work at the Holocaust Center really ended, and I feel like when I wrote this chapter, and, and in both chapters I have, you know, in both books I have chapters on my work itself, but the telling the Holocaust stories is what's most important, and I do that when I'm teaching all the time. I am constantly, you know, it was funny because oh. when I left the center, I thought, you know, it's over. But I don't think there's a single class or conversation I have where I don't mention something about something I've gained or learned from them. Could I ask a question about that about the Holocaust? Sure. Is it even is it even taught in schools today? Do you yes. Think? So it is. So in Florida in 1994, our center actually um, had um, Holocaust education mandated. We wrote um, three, four um, resource manuals for the different grades and um, sent them to all 67 counties in Florida. It was a, a state mandate. In Florida now, things have changed drastically with our new governor, and some of that is, um, I'm not sure exactly how they're uh, teaching the Holocaust. I know it's really changed, and I'm not happy about that. Um, but it is, um, there, are, there are many, many states. I, I don't know how many. I think at the time that we mandated Holocaust education in the state of Florida, I think there were 12 or 13 um, there are museums all over, and there is definitely being taught. It's not being taught um, in some places based on, you know, I guess on the who's running the state. Yeah. Um, but it is, but it is being taught definitely, and has to be taught. I mean, we have to learn. It has, and, it has to be taught. Absolutely, right. it has to be taught. And now, you know, now it's happening, and my heart is breaking, especially for the survivors. Who are living through this time and seeing what's happened, um, and certainly not this is not a Holocaust, but it is um, it is really unfortunate, and people's lives on both sides are being killed, and um, mm-hmm. and Jews really are are being targeted again, and that's really mm-hmm. hard for the survivors, and my heart breaks for them. Yeah. Well, we're out yeah. of time. And I'm sorry I to know. end on <laughs> so sorry to end on such a sad note, but that's the world we live in, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Uh, Caroline, yeah. do you have some final words for us today? Oh, gosh. Well, I'll tell you. I started, you know, you saw, I, I looked at this book and I thought, oh gosh, I'll never get through this. So I started reading it, and then I find that I, I have to go back and read it again because I there's mm. so much in this book. This book is fantastic, really. I, Thank you. Really, I, I, just, I just don't know. I, there's a lot of things I could say, but I can't even put it in words because it was so amazing. It really was. Caroline, thank, thank you. you. And and I would 
series about um, helping if, if in any way I can help you get started with a writing group again. So just uh, oh, okay. okay. my email address. Okay. All right. Thank well, you very much. Well, thank you both. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. And thank you, Monica, for having me. I really appreciated it and enjoyed talking to both of you.